Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum, and I am your host of a pen and a napkin podcast, a weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome to episode number 127, and I am really happy to have a gentleman that some of you might already know. His name is Garrett Hickey. He is the boys' head basketball coach at Norwalk High School in the great state, the, is it, oh, uh, what is Connecticut? What's the nickname of Connecticut? I was going to call it the Keystone State, but that's Pennsylvania. Coach, what is it? Yeah, Constitution State. The Constitution State. Thank you very much. Us social studies teachers, you're up on me one to zero in social studies uh, <laughs> trivia right now, Coach. Uh, I'm going to even that up by the time of the the end of this podcast. I, I can't go down, and if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging here. So Sounds good. All right. Uh, before we bring in Coach Hickey officially here, we, of course, want to thank our founding sponsor, COSAC Chiropractic. Again, if you have any uh, balanced neck or spinal issues, go uh, give Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi a call at 402-964-0300. Check out their website at cosacchiro.com. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. We try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle, so be sure to follow us there. Uh, if you're listening, you're obviously on iTunes, so give us a good review. Download, rate, review, give us five stars so we can go out, gain momentum in the ratings, and help as many coaches as we can to hone their craft. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at penandanapkin at gmail.com. If you would like to contribute to the success of Pen and a Napkin, go check out a pen and a napkin at Patreon. Go to patreon.com backslash a pen and a napkin and check out a pen and a napkin.com. Put on some new stuff here today, some Don Meyer coaching notes that I dug up. I put in a couple of sections under our coaching resources there. Went to a coach's clinic this last weekend down at the University of Nebraska and and uh, took my, my raw notes and put them right back up there. Had about five pages of notes that I took at the clinic there. So check it out at a pen and a napkin.com. Coach Garrett Hickey uh, from the great Northeast air here. Uh, first of all, Coach, you got to be feeling good about Celtic pride here. Uh, game one of the Eastern Conference Finals here tonight. Uh, what are you thinking going in here against the Heat? We were originally going to record this on Sunday, and Coach had some scheduling conflicts, and then I had some scheduling conflicts, so we were going to talk about the semifinals, but we're moved on from that. Let's talk. Let's do a, a two-minute preview of the Eastern Conference Finals here as we get going here, Coach. What's your What's your thoughts as a as a true Green Celtics fan going into this seven gamer against your the, the nemesis, the Miami Heat? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I will say that um, you know Giannis was the was the player that scared me the most. He in is the a, East. he um, is a monster, man. He is so good. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to say that I'm, like, overly confident about the Celtics against the Heat, but I will say that I think defensively they match up, um, you know, a lot better because I think they're going to do a very good job, uh, you know, on Jimmy Butler. And uh, I think it's said today that Lowry was out for game one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. I thought I read that. So that kind of makes it a little bit uh, bit better. And hopefully I haven't – Looked online yet, but hopefully Smart got the okay to go for game one. I know that he was kind of questionable. So I mm-hmm. think if we have Smart and if we have a full roster, I, I, I'm liking our chances. Do you worry a little bit about just going through this seven-game slugfest? And the Heat have kind of cruised here. They beat the Hawks, I believe, in five. Uh, they beat the corpse of the Philadelphia 76ers in, in six games. And and the Celtics have gone through this uh, – just this battle with the Bucks here and, and how much they have left in the tank. Does that worry you a little bit? 
it doesn't really worry me. I actually like the fact that that Game Seven was a pretty easy victory for them uh, mm-hmm. in the second. You know, once the second half came, and I like the fact that they were at home and they didn't have to travel anywhere afterwards, uh, so they could go home, kind of rest up the, the last couple of days, and then you know be ready for their for their first game and uh, away. So I think you know I, I'm a big believer in. I think it's better to to keep playing um, mm-hmm. than have a ton of off time and downtime. Uh, but then again, I you know I've never played in the NBA or coached in the NBA, so I have no idea what those guys like. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I've never been an NBA coach. I just played one on TV before. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, no, I agree with you on that point. There, there is a, a case to be made where you just keep playing and you stay in a rhythm, and everybody's falling into their roles and and things like that. Um, I'm going to make a bold prediction here. Uh, I think it's going to be a good series. I think it's going to be a defensive series. I'm going to pick Celtics in six, um, and and I think uh, especially if they can win one of these first two in Miami, uh, I, I think I just don't know if Miami has enough firepower uh, to to really create against uh, the Celtics defense the way that uh, uh, the that Brooklyn could, and and. You know, the whole team teaming of Giannis, I think Giannis just kind of ran out of gas and then the role players couldn't hit shots. Uh, I think Miami is is just a tier below Milwaukee, and I think if, especially if, if Boston can get one of these first two in Miami, I like the Celtics in six. How about you? Yeah, I, this from, from your mouth to God's ears is what I'll say to that one. I, I, like, I like that. And, uh, anytime we don't have to go to a game seven, I'm perfectly fine with it. So I'll take I'll take uh, Celtics in six too. That's great. All right, sounds good. Well, there's there's our two minute preview of the Eastern Conference Finals. Let's do this. Let's go one more question on the NBA before we start jumping in on your stuff. Uh, if the Celtics were to get, uh, if they were able to move on uh, out of the West, which one would you rather play, Golden State or Dallas? Ah uh, man. Um, which one? I guess, like selfishly as a basketball fan, I think I'd love to see the Celtics versus the Mavs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm mean, pretty. I'd be pretty interested to see what the Celtics would do against uh, Doncic. But uh, you know, obviously, you know, Golden State is just scary. With you know, they got they kind of have the the toughness guy in Draymond that kind of cancels out almost you know Marcus Smart. So it's and then they you know they have their shooters Clay and, and Steph, and mm-hmm. so it, it's it, I, I I think. I think I would rather face the Mavs, but then again, you're also might be facing one of at least the top three best players in the NBA. So it's a little, it's a, I don't know. That's a tough one to pick, but I, I guess I'll go Mavs uh, that I'd rather see them play than, than Golden State. Gotcha. All right. Well, enough about the NBA, Garrett. Let's start talking about you. Let's start talking about your your background. Uh, for the folks that don't know uh, a whole lot about you, just t- tell us about your basketball journey and, and how you ended up at Norwalk High. Sure. Um, yeah, I kind of had a, a little bit of a weird journey uh, for me. Uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, where baseball was kind of my main sport uh, in, high, in middle school and high school that I played, uh, and I just so happened to also play basketball. Um, you know, I never played past the JV level of basketball in high school. And um, when I went to college, I kind of you know went away from you know the game itself, basically just played pickup and things like that. And when I got out of college and I moved back home, my mom was a principal and they needed a, a volunteer coach for their middle school team. So I kind of, you know, I wanted to do something mm-hmm. uh, in the community. I needed some 
volunteer hours and I want, I was getting into education. So I did that. And that's kind of where I fell in love with, um, you know, the coaching part of, uh-huh. of basketball. And then, um, from there I kind of just knew that's what I wanted to do. So when, uh, I got my first teaching job, I coached the middle school team and I, uh, volunteered at a local high school. And it just so happened that the high school that I was volunteering at ended up making the state championship game that year, um, which is really awesome mm-hmm. uh, experience for me. And then uh, one of the kids that uh, was a senior that year on the team was recruited by uh, a D3 college locally in New Haven, Connecticut, Albertus Madness College. And uh, the head coach there uh, was losing his assistant one of his assistants that after that season he, he knew and uh, I made the connection there and I ended up getting my, my college job there mm-hmm. um, without with pretty much without any sort of a lick of a resume. Um, and I was kind of thrown into the fire there and that's where I really just lo- like learned to uh, like all the different ins and outs of not just the X's and O's, but obviously just being a coach and, and how to, you know, handle a staff, handle uh, a program, and then, um, you know, as, as we, as I progressed in, through my life, I kind of realized what I wanted to do with my life was I, I didn't want to stop teaching cause I liked my teaching job. So, mm-hmm. and coaching at the college level wasn't exactly, um, I wasn't going to be able to do both mm-hmm. and I knew that. And so that's when I started looking for high school jobs. I made the transition after a few years at Albertus back to, uh, the high school, um, the, the high school level at Fairfield Prep in Fairfield, Connecticut. And then uh, I was there for four years, and then I was lucky enough this past season was my first year as the head coach at, uh, at Norwalk High School. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of my journey in, in, a, in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, explain for, you know, kind of the, the prep school thing is, is kind of a Northeast thing, although they're, you know, they're, they're in pockets around the country, but they're, they're most popular, most, most prominent, most prominent, in the Northeast, what what is the kind of the concept? <coughs> excuse me of of the prep school and how does it work? That what makes it different than a traditional high school? So what I will say, and this gets everybody. So Fairfield Prep is actually a uh, CIC or State of Connecticut uh, high school. It's not actually a traditional prep school. It's just okay. called that. Um, it's actually on the same campus as Fairfield University, which is why they call it a preparatory school okay. but i can still kind of answer your question just because i'm familiar with it and i have friends who, who coach at that level so the, sure. the prep school is basically um you know it's it's used in two different ways it's used in your traditional way of a kid goes through their four years of high school um and they're either you know not completely satisfied with the looks that they've gotten or they think that they could use one more year of um you know skill development or weightlifting or whatever it might be uh, to get better offers at the college level. So they'll do a post-grad year, and that's kind of the traditional way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the way that's kind of becoming a little bit more popular now is um, kids reclassifying um, and starting at a prep school earlier. So I've had kids who've done, uh, you know, there's kids who do their freshman year of high school, traditional high school, and then they realize that, um, you know, the the prep school was probably the is the better route for them and so they'll reclassify and they'll repeat their freshman year and then go play prep school and the difference in the northeast at least that i can speak to is you know at the uh the nfhs high school level for us you know there's rules and we're sanctioned by you know we can only work with the kids a certain amount of time during the year 
Um, shot clock is obviously a big thing for the state of Connecticut. We don't have one. We are getting one, but right now we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little bit and jealous. The, <laughs> and yeah, and the, and the prep schools, they don't have um, a lot of those restrictions. The, the coaches can kind of be working with them 24-7 because if you're going to a prep school, you're usually focusing on one sport. Um, so it's if, if you're in your offseason, you're not playing another sport, you're focusing still on that sport. Um, and then obviously – you know they have the they've had the shot clock for for years now, so mm-hmm. that's kind of the the that's kind of the setup of, of, of what we have um, you know here in the Northeast, and, and I'm sure that's probably the case around the, the rest of the country. Gotcha, gotcha. You have a, a, a terrific uh, newsletter that you've had here. Hashtag uh, share the game. Uh, where, where did you come up with that idea, and and what yeah, what was kind of the genesis of that, and and what's all involved with it? Sure. Uh, I mean, the, the the beginning of that was basically just me being really bored during uh, the whole COVID shutdown. Okay. And uh, I started organizing a lot of the stuff that I had. Um, and at the time, I was still an associate head coach. So I was looking for jobs and getting prepared to, you know, run my own program. And I had, uh, you know, been jumping on a ton of Zooms at that time and just connecting with people. And I realized that, you know, other people – have the, these great things and these great resources that um, that they had, and, and I thought I had a few of my own. And it, I kind of realized that, like, I guess before COVID, I just always assumed that like coaches were very secretive and they weren't going to share their stuff because they didn't want the people stealing it, yada yada yada. And then something that I realized when I was doing all these zooms and these clinics and things like that is that a lot of coaches, the majority of them, are willing to share. You just have to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the whole kind of start of that hashtag share the game or the newsletter was let's you know as coaches while we can't play because here in Connecticut we were shut you know we were shut down pretty much for uh, a good amount of months where we could not play uh-huh. and so it was kind of just a way of, of us as coaches to still continue to get better and improve and share the stuff that we had and the knowledge that we had together. Um, and so it started off really small, like you said, with the newsletter. Um, it's kind of gotten a little bit of, of speed and some leeway here. So I, I, I'm moving more toward uh, using Twitter as like the main platform mm-hmm. um, for it just because there's so much on there. Um, and I'm also starting to kind of lean toward, um, you know, helping kids get, um, you know, get seen. You know, either whether they're my own kids from my high school or from our state or, you know, I'll, I'll have random kids just send the DMs asking me to just retweet their uh, a highlight video and some of their information just mm-hmm. to try and get it out there. And so that's basically the, the, the whole thought process behind it is just helping other people. Uh, and at the same time, hopefully, you know, being able to, to be a sponge and, and steal stuff from other coaches as well. What do you see that coaches are most interested in like what are what are the top two or three skills that coaches are trying to develop within their bag of tricks within their skill set to make themselves the 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 best coach that they can be yeah i mean i think in my from what i've seen i think a lot of people are interested in just how other people run programs um you know what are they focused on what are their pillars obviously like the the word that goes around a lot is the culture, like how do you build your culture, that sort of thing. So that's a lot of what people tend to ask or to talk about. Um, And then something that kind of goes right along with that is, 
you know, how do you set up practices? What are you looking at for practices? What are you, um, uh, like, what are you doing in a practice? How long is your practice? That, that sort of thing, uh, which is, which is pretty kind of often, that's something that I often get asked and something often that people share, like, here's my practice plan. What's your practice plan look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I see too. When people ask me about stuff, uh, those, those are two things that are way at the top of the list. Um, oddly, I don't want to say oddly, uh, I, you know, I, I do this uh, one thing, uh, it's called two-minute drills uh, a week, and the ones that inevitably hit the best, for whatever reason, are rebounding build- drills. People love yeah. rebounding drills. I don't know why. Uh, so, uh, but that, that Probably because not a lot of people are good at it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or you always feel like you should be better at it than what you are. Right. So, right. Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thought. So, um with that, you've obviously been able to make a lot of connections. You know, wh- how important is it for for coaches to make connections? What are the best ways to to make connections, to help network yourself, and to make yourself the most? I, I hate to use this word, but it, it is part of the job uh, to make yourself the most marketable that you can to to reach your career goals and and make those connections with 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 other coaches around the country. Yeah, I think, you know, I, this answer probably for me has, has changed in, in the most recent years. But um, for me, it's just, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to somebody, even if you think they're, you know, in a, in a more important spot than you are. Um, because I've had people when I first started this, that when I was in clinics and, you know, at the end of the clinic, the coach shares their email or their, uh, you know, office phone number and says, oh, contact me if you have any questions. And I think before this, I was always kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, you're just sharing that. But if I send an email, it gets lost in the, you know, thousands of emails this person probably gets uh, a day. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that they are more than willing to take the time uh, to to look at something or to answer a question. I had multiple, you know, I won't name drop, but I've I've had multiple, you know, high D1 coaches who – I, before I got my head coaching job, I sent them my coaching portfolio and asked them to take a look at it and give me any feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and the biggest thing was the worst thing that would happen if I send it was that I never heard from the person. So, mm-hmm. it, and that was it, but it was like, I never got an email back saying, please stop emailing me and don't annoy me. It mm-hmm. was either I didn't hear hear back from them, which is fine. Or, uh, you know, I heard back and I got a lot of really good information, a re- really good feedback on, on that. And it helps to just have you know, that connection, um, you know, you, cause you never know you send that email and then you never know when you apply for a job. If you're a young coach who's trying to get in their foot in the door in college, you don't know who knows who and who's going to pick the phone up and call someone and say, Oh yeah, that kid, you know, took the time to email me and send me his portfolio and just wanted some feedback. Like that shows that the kid wants to, to learn and get better. So I think that would be my piece of advice on that for sure. So what what uh, we're going to sidetrack from the original blueprint here because now you've you've tweaked me my interest here. Uh, okay. so what do you have in your uh, in your in your coach when you say coach's portfolio? And I think I've got a pretty good idea of what you're talking about. Uh, but to to for those that may not understand or or haven't thought about putting something together like this, what are you talking about with your coaching portfolio? So it's something that I put together right after I left my college job when I was when I got to, to Fairfield Prep. And it's basically just a binder that 
I made as if I was going into each season as the head coach, even though I wasn't the head coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, philosophies. It was um, practice planning, uh, mock schedule, uh, pro- like curriculum uh, for each levels of the program, uh, things like that. And so, yeah, technically speaking, I guess it wasn't a waste of time at all, but it wasn't anything that was, you know, all the stuff wasn't used because obviously our head coach was doing the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. But when I went to, when I went on interviews and I went to interviews, it was the main thing that I brought and it was the main thing that I was able to point to when I was answering pretty much the majority of the questions that you get asked in an interview. Mm-hmm. So instead of me just sitting there and handing out a resume and that was it, when someone asked me about program development, I could point to my binder and go bring them to a page and say, you know, here's the reference. This is what I, I believe would, would work well. If they mm-hmm. asked about practice planning, I had, you know, you know, copies of practice plans that I would do, you know, beginning, middle and end of the year, that sort of thing. Um, and, and kind of go from there. So it was, it was a living document that I would tweak every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was something that with the feedback that I got from a lot of coaches was like, when I first made it, I thought I needed to print out and like have all these different plays and sets and things like that. And the feedback that I got was like from coaches were like, they're not, you know, first of all, you're putting together plays for (laughs) a team that you have no idea who is on the team. Yeah. Uh, And so I shied away from a lot of the X's and O's at that point and really geared it toward, um, philosophies on different areas that are important and uh, and like practice planning and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think when employers are looking at you as a potential coach or uh, you know head coach, assistant coach, it's not so much about the the schemes, but it's about what kind of environment are you going to set? What is your plan for dealing with an upset parent? What is your plan for dealing with a with a player who's having academic troubles? And those are the things, you know, schematically, especially at the high school level, that's going to change from year to year. And you're going to have yep. to make a lot of adjustments because most of us can't recruit to fit a scheme. We have to adjust our fundamentals to what our players' strengths and weaknesses are. So when you're going out and interviewing for that job, those are the things that, most administrators want to hear about are the things that we just talked about. Has that been your experience as well, Garrett? Yeah. And and one of the biggest pieces of advice is that, that I got throughout the board when I was sending this out and getting feedback on it was, you know, a lot of times you think about the people who are in an interview, if there's a panel of five people, maybe one of them is somebody who's involved with like the basketball part. It might be the girls coach. It might Mm -hmm. be, you know, the athletic director who used to coach basketball or whatever, but for a lot of, times it's you know it could be the principal the assistant principal the president who their association with basketball is that they go to the basketball games and cheer yeah so they're not going to be impressed by you having a playbook of 200 plays because they're not going to really care about that yeah they want to know who you are as a person they want to know what you're going to do for the program for the school and for the kids that are involved in it want to know more about a pen and a napkin and all the resources it offers Go to apennantanapkin.com, a great resource for any coach at any level. In addition to our Apennantanapkin University video library options that are available to order, we have hundreds of pages of notes, from one-page handouts to book breakdowns to original coaching notes. We also have coaching links, a full catalog of every Apennantanapkin podcast, and ways to contribute to the growth of Apennantanapkin. Apennantanapkin.com is a coaching resource that will help you become a better coach you uh 
you've done a lot with with sharing information and you know working with other people what have you in in your experience what seems to be the best ways to absorb information and to to learn the game and to to instruct the game you know when it comes to the teaching of the game uh, what are what are the things that you've kind of put together and learn from your you know your own experiences and other people's experiences other people's information how do you chop that up and bring it out to your to your players and to your team and also for yourself how do you learn more about the game what are the best methods for you to learn how to be a better coach sure yeah i i think you know for for one part for me and, and how i i try to become a better coach is is, is listening um, and not being the one who's always talking or sharing ideas or having opinions, even if you have them, just like hearing what other people think about something. And even if you disagree with it, just, you know, asking why they think that way instead of coming back with like a rebuttal to, to what they're talking about. Um, and just kind of trying to understand everyone's why. And that kind of loops into how I've changed my philosophy with like teaching the game and getting kids to understand the game is, is I don't do a lot of talking in my practice. I don't do a lot of talking before, during, or after the games. It's more of a constant asking questions, constant uh, like listening to what the players are, are feeling, what they're seeing, um, and you know, kind of using that as my my rudder to steer us in the right direction to where I, I think and where our coaching staff thinks we need to be. And I think. That's definitely something that's changed for me just like in this past year or past two years, but it's definitely, I think, helped me grow not just as a basketball coach, but as like a person and as somebody who's, you know, able to teach and, and lead young men in sports and in trying to hopefully, you know, teach them life skills and life lessons. Mm-hmm. Is that not talking thing? Is that at times difficult for you to do uh, to not oh, yeah. try to overteach it? Oh, for sure. Because I'm naturally, as my personality comes across, I'm somebody who's loves to talk and loves to talk about things, and especially things that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, it's really it was it was and is still really hard to not you go off on tangents and talk about stuff. Um, and it, it's it's challenging at, at times, but it when you one of the things that I try to do is when I and talking about the game and in practice or in one of our coaches meetings, instead of talking in like sentences, like I am kind of right now, I'm taught, I usually talk in kind of like leading questions or like guided questions. Mm -hmm. And that's helped me, you know, stop talking because it's giving other people the opportunity to then answer what I'm trying to say. And then the second thing, and it's a really hard part and it's helped me become a better teacher and a better coach and a better listener is, allowing and i don't remember who i heard this from I, I i'm blanking on it right now and i wish i could give the person credit but it's allowing for that like awkward 30 to 60 seconds of silence that sometimes comes when you ask a question to kids and sometimes even adults where a lot of times i think we as coaches and teachers we wait like 15 20 seconds and then we're like okay they don't know the answer so i'm gonna give it to them yeah instead of allowing them to kind of fight through that mental uh a bit like mental block and and challenge them to really think about it 
and wait for an answer. And sometimes, so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll ask that question. It'll be 30 seconds of awkward silence. And I'll say, you know what, think on it. I'm going to come back to you in like two or three minutes to see if you got a better, uh, you have an answer or you have an idea Yeah, and then kind of go from there. You're better at that than I am. That's the stubborn Italian would be in me is answer this. We're not going anywhere until we answer this question. You know, so you're, you're, you're better than I am at that. So, uh, you know, our, our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses, but, uh, I, I know what you're saying with those, with those quick, uh, bull, you know, Kevin Eastman talks, uh, you know, former Celtics assistant coach there, world champion with yep. doc rivers. Uh, he talks about seven second or he talk, uh, talking bullet points, you know, coaching bullet yep. points, talking bullet points, teaching bullet points. And then, uh, you know, Rick Pitino, seven second corrections. And those are two things that have always stuck in my head when I'm talking to my team, you know, because the, the more I'm talking, the less they're doing. And ultimately they have to do it in order to really get the muscle memory down for whatever skill that it is that we're doing. Now I understand that there's every once in a while, you have to talk a little bit more than you want to, to explain it the way that you need to, but talking those bullet points, talking those seven second corrections, because ultimately they need to get those reps in to make themselves better. So that's something yeah. that's always stuck in my head. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, for sure. So I, I loved a, a post that you had uh, about, okay, what's today's date? The seven, So it's been about two weeks ago. Ten things I learned as a first-year head coach. And I don't know if you remember all of these or not, Garrett. Uh, luckily for you, I do have them right in front of me as we're talking. Uh, but, you know, that first year as, as a head coach, you, you think you're ready. You always think you're uh, you, you're, you're, I won't say you think you're ready. You probably think you're more ready than what you really are as a first year head coach. And then all of these things happen that you're not really ready for, or your role is so drastically different as a head coach, as opposed to an assistant coach. And even no matter how much you prepare yourself for it, there's always going to be a bunch of things that catch you by surprise. And there's a lot of things to learn as a first year head coach. So I don't know if you remember everything on this list, Garrett, but if, if you wouldn't mind kind of talking about that experience of being a first-year head coach and some of the valuable lessons that you took from that, even with this, these great experiences that you've had preparing yourself as a, as a longtime assistant coach before you moved over those 18 inches. Yeah, no, and I, I, I do remember them because um, I don't have them in front of me, but just because they, uh, they, I, I spent a long time really thinking about them and coming up with them because it was a question that um, I got asked a lot um, from some like friends who were still assistants who were trying to be head coaches. But um, I, I, I don't know. Do you want me to go through like them quickly or I can just hit on like a few that I thought was, was really the important ones. You know what, Garrett, it's your world. I'm just living in it. You are the guest. <laughs> I am the host. You do what you, you, let's do this. You talk about what you think are, the most important things that you think coaches need to know, I guess would be the best way to to go through it. So that sounds sounds good. Yeah. So I I think that the, the the first one, and it kind of goes along with what we were talking about earlier is letting the kids know like upfront right away. um, And it's something that I tried to, I should have done earlier, but I didn't was, was let them know that you're not coming in thinking that you're like a basketball expert and that you're a coaching expert that you're a human, that you're going to make mistakes along with them and that they have to understand that. Um, and that they have to be okay with the fact that I'm going to make mistakes as the head coach, just like I'm going to be okay with the fact that they're going to make mistakes as high school kids. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that, that was a a really important one for me. Um, another one 
that that I thought it was just really really important, at least from my personal experience, was, was you know telling the kids that you love them. I mean, it, it's you know obviously it, it can be a little weird at first, especially if they've never heard it from another you know, male adult that's not a family member. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that it was like I, I started doing right away from the jump that I believed in, and um, you know. I, it probably took a month or, or a month and a half or two months before someone actually said it back to me, which was a little hard. Um, <laughs> but they, it was really re- rewarding. Like the first time I said that, Hey man, like I love you, good job. And, and I got a, I love you too coach. And that was like a really rewarding moment and something that like stuck out for me, uh-huh. um, for my first year. Uh, and, and I think it's just important, especially on the guy side is just understanding that, you know what, it is okay for you to tell like your friend that you love them or that yeah. it's okay to tell somebody who you really care about or you're going th- through an experience with that, that you love them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think definitely uh, for me personally during the year, you know, there was a point where we, we, we went through COVID and we lost a lot of our uh, players. Um, and at a certain point, halfway through the season, exactly. We were two and eight. And, you know, at that point, it was really tough. I, I didn't know if I would needed to change up what we were doing. I didn't know if, um, you know, I, obviously you question yourself as a, as a, as a head coach and as a person, like, did, am I doing a good job? Am I the right person for this? Yeah. Uh, yep. And I think, you know, the one thing that all of my mentors um, who were head coaches that I've worked under told me was just they were like, keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're, you're a good person. You put the work in you deserve to have the job. There's a reason they hired you just continue on the course. And eventually, you know, they're going to hopefully jump on board and, and, and get it. And, um, you know, I, I did that and we, we ended up, you know, going, uh, nine and 13 from, from that point on. And, and it was, it, it, you know, obviously now I get the benefit of looking back on it and saying, Oh, see, like we just had to stay the course and we were fine. But you know, when we, when we were two and eight and those, know long bus rides or long nights when i was thinking about it were were definitely tough um brother i was i was i'm I'm with you there uh when i took over my new job we started out two and 12 and we had an eight game losing streak i'd never lost eight games in a row in my life man and and i was in some ways i was kind of in the same boat and and you know but i was you know i went into the situation hey we're not really going to worry about winning and losing we're going to worry about building culture and, and championship habits, and this is how we're going to do things for the long term. And sometimes as coaches, we we look at that scoreboard as the, the judge of what, what we're doing is right or wrong, where sometimes, especially when we're struggling, we got to dive a little bit deeper and find those key things and, and keep emphasizing those things. And at some point, that's going to pay off. And we, you know, we kind of went through the same thing. We started out two and 12. We finished the rest of the season six and four. And, you know, we, we were right at 500 for most of the year this past year, uh, starting, you know, we started out zero and five, we had a tough early schedule, but you know, we, we, you know, so you have to, you know, it's important to stay with it in those situations. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I I mean, absolutely. I I mean, obviously, you know, it, it was, it was hard for me too, because everywhere that I had been prior, we had been successful. And so, you know, being two and eight was was tough for me mm-hmm. just as a competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely, you know, the, the it was definitely worth just sticking to the convictions that we had as a staff and the principles that we put into place. And, 
and eventually, you know, I, I guess this kind of goes along with it is that, you know, the, the kids are going to buy into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, and it, it, sometimes it, it takes a practice. Sometimes it takes a small moment during a practice or sometimes it takes like a big win. And, and that's kind of what we had. We, we, I had a moment where I sat a couple of our, our upperclassmen and played underclassmen and, and we won two games. Um, and they kind of used that as a, a, a eye-opening moment. And then we won a, a big game against a Division One opponent that was, um, you know, had a really good record and, and was in and out of the state rankings. And I think from there on, they, you know, they, they understood like, okay, what, you know, not what I'm doing, but what we're trying to do as a group mm-hmm. is going to work if everyone can get on board with it. Yep. Yep. Okay. What else from this list? I love this. This yeah, is this is great. The, the the, the last the last two um, that I'll that I'll say the, the is that it's great to ask for advice but it doesn't always mean that you have to take it um, because I asked advice to I mean when we were two and eight I asked advice from anybody I asked my wife and she has no idea about basketball I was like what do you think we should do and she's like I don't know win yeah. and I was like that's fair yeah um, but I, I score asked, more points so I, than the other team sounds yeah, good exactly yeah. Um, but I, you know, I asked advice from a lot of people and, and, you know, some people gave me advice that I use and other people gave me advice that I listened to. I thought about, and I said, you know what? I I don't, I don't think that's the direction I want to go. I don't think that's what I want to do. And, um, I think sometimes, especially like for me as a first year head coach, you know, if I'm asking somebody who's done it for a really long time and they give me a piece of advice, Sometimes you almost feel like, well, I need to listen to this person because they've done it for this amount. But their advice might not translate directly into what you're trying to do or the messages that you've been trying to convey to your team. And so it's okay to, you know, not take that, not take the advice and not use it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's an important lesson. Um, And then the last one, I guess it's kind of simple, but just enjoy every single minute of it enjoy the the whole ride enjoy the ups enjoy the downs um because you know i in in the moment i get i i think i need to do a better job of it in the coming years Mm -hmm. um because i you know would get stressed out or look too much farther in advance but um because there were there were some really cool moments and some really good moments even in the low points of our season um that i thought once i looked back and reflected on the year i I thought wow you know i wish i had kind of let that sink in and enjoy it. Um, you know, whether it was a freshman coming up when we had, uh, I'm sorry, a sophomore coming up when we had a lot of kids out with COVID and, and scoring, you know, 23 points in a loss, um, that, you know, that was something that I guess I kind of just, you know, I was upset we lost, so I moved on from it, but I probably should have embraced that a little bit more, uh, not just for the kid, but as in general. Um, and then, you know, just other moments where, you know, small things, uh, you know, in, in, in practice, you know, uh, two kids that maybe hadn't gotten along for a while, high-fiving each other after a good play, like mm-hmm. those little things and just kind of, you know, understand that those are sometimes the, um, the the items or the things that happen that show you that what you're doing is, is working. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, it's not necessarily going to show all the time on the scoreboard or on the in on the record. Yep. Well, the the base word of of that is is joy, and that's a word yes. that I've tried to go back to. It's it's something that at times in my career I did not have a lot of joy in in coaching, and 
it is something that after I took a couple of years off that I swore that I would never not coach without joy consistently. Now there's nights where you have a, a, a you know a, a tough loss and you're you're up till one or two o'clock in the morning watching the film and why didn't we get this rebound and all this other stuff. And I'm not saying that it's it's uh, kumbaya and we're holding hands around the campfire the entire time. But overall, you have to find joy in pretty much everything that you do. Otherwise, it becomes a job, and that's not why we're doing this. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get into our wooden quote of the day here, Coach, I've got one more. Uh, I've got another. Okay, i gotta, I got to tie up the, the social studies teacher tally here. All right. Are you ready? Okay. All right. All right. I'm ready. All right. In the Constitutional Convention, the Great Compromise is often called the Connecticut Compromise because the leader of the committee that came up with the Great Compromise was from Connecticut. What was the name of that delegate from Connecticut? Ooh, okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, um, no, I was going to say Thomas Hooker, but that's the found. Uh, I'm blanking on it right now. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you five more seconds before we bore any other uh, non-social. Uh, I know it's not right, but I'm just going to say Thomas Hooker. That is, <laughs> that is, incorrect. Yeah. No, it, oh, sure. Is it Sherman? It is Roger Sherman. Oh, oh too late there. though. Too late. You gave me your final answer. Darn it. See, now Darn I can it. I can sleep well tonight. I feel better. All right. Oh, I should have known that. Darn it. All right. I'm it's okay. Sleep on that one now. It's okay. That's all right. See if you can come up with some uh, Nebraska or Iowa history by the time this is over, and, and and see if you can get one up on me by the time we're done. How about that? So there you go. All right, coaches. I love doing a pen and a napkin. It is something that was intended to become a hobby, but it has become a passion and a blessing in my life. I love helping coaches, and I hope that I've been able to help you in some way, shape, or form. I want to do more, but I need your help to do that. I've recently opened up a Patreon page to help a pen and a napkin grow even further, and I'd appreciate any help that you would be willing to give to a pen and a napkin. From the layup tier, and for as little as $3 a month, to the three-point tier, your generosity will enable a pen and a napkin to grow and develop even greater projects than we've already done. For more information, go to appenandanapkin.com and go to the Patreon link or go to patreon.com backslash appenandanapkin. The John Wooden quote of the day. We're going to transition here. Uh, the John Wooden quote of the day. We're going to jump into this. This is from uh, Wooden, A Lifetime of Observations here. And this is basically from the same section of the book that we had last week with Coach Henderson. Uh, Coach, are you ready for the John Wooden quote of the day? Let's go. I'm ready. All right. John Wooden quote of the day from page 43 of Wooden, A Lifetime of Observations is, why is it so much easier to complain about the things we do not have than to make the most of and appreciate the things we do have? I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable there, so I'm going to say this again. Why is it so much easier to complain about the things we do not have than to make the most of and appreciate the things that we do have. And I think that's so applicable to coaching. Uh, to We always look at the other sideline, and they've got to have it so much better than us. And look at that kid. I bet they're so much easier to coach than Tommy or Becky or that type of thing. Instead of appreciating Tommy or Becky for who they are and just focusing on, on our side of the fence, I think is so important in our job. That's, that's what yeah. comes out of it for me. So what do you think, Garrett? 
No, I, I yeah, I, I agree. I think it goes along with, with, with two things. Is um, uh, number one, I think to answer the kind of question that Wooden's asking there is is that it doesn't really take a lot of thought or effort to complain, but it does to try and figure out how to use what you have to the best of your ability. And the second thing, and I, and I always say this to, so I say it to my assistants, I say it to my players all the time, is that everyone always, you know, um, the grass is always greener is, is kind of the phrase that everyone always says about, um, you know, on the other side of the fence. And I always talk about, well, what have you done to make your grass green? Yeah. Are, you, are you watering it? Are you are you taking care of it? Are you fertilizing it? Or are you just sitting there looking at it, complaining and looking at the other side of the fence and wishing that was yours? Yep. Yep. So I, I absolutely, I, I, I love that quote. That's, that's great. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that goes with program building. You can complain about West High down the road or, or Tech tech High or whatever, uh, and, and what they have. You know, hey, develop your players. Put in the time. Yeah. Uh, make the most out of them with what you have, so forth and so on. Recruit your own kids before you worry about anybody else and, and all of those things. And, and keep the focus on your program because that's truly the only thing you can control. Otherwise, all the other, all the, all the other stuff you have no control over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Well, uh, enough on that. Uh, so let's jump into pra- uh, your your basketball philosophy. Uh, you gave us two or three really good things to talk about here today, Coach. Let's talk about your practice planning, what, you, what you've learned your first year as a head coach, what did you emphasize uh, for planning practices, and, and how you'd like to put together a quality practice for your program. And at this point, uh, I always say this, I'm, I'm going to let you cook, and if something pops in my head here, I'll, I'll try to interrupt uh, politely and, and ask a question. But just tell us about how you put together uh, practice plans there for Norwalk High and, and the Bears there. Sure, yeah, uh, and this is something that I'm really passionate about, um, and it, it, I think it's really, really important, and it's something that, at least if I would say, if I was ranking things that I do well as a head coach, I think practice planning would probably be up there as, as one of the things that I do um, pretty well, uh, good job at. So the thing that I use, or uh, that we use as a staff, is this something that I kind of came up with that I put together from books that I read and, and, and things like that. It's called the, uh, the fixed guide and follow method. And so obviously, you know, when we put our practice plan together, my practice plan looks probably just like everyone else's. It has the time duration of the things we're doing. It has an explanation of what, you know, we're doing, whether it's the name of the small sided game or, uh, the name of the fundamental that we're working on. And then on the third kind of, um, category or column that I write in is where we label whatever we're doing as either a fix, a guide or a follow. And what that is, it's solely for the rest of the coaches, because from my experience, the biggest problem that I've, I've come across and that I've seen at practices that I've either been a part of or ran or just watched was that not only does sometimes the head coach talk too much, but then you also have like the assistant, the other assistant, and somebody else would chime in afterwards or during, and then it ends up being 90 seconds, 120 seconds of talking, and the kids just standing around and, and really nothing getting done. So mm-hmm. what the fix, guide, and follow method does is it labels things and it tells the coaching staff what we are looking for in terms of stoppages, in terms of giving feedback, and things like that. So if something's labeled as a fix, that usually means it's a new small-sided game that we're putting in or it might be a new 
set play or a new defense that we're putting in. And we allowed for there to be stoppages there when it's needed. And, you know, we have a rule of thumb as a staff that if one person stops, that's the person who talks. Um, and then when they're done, that's it. We don't need two other people or three other people saying the same thing in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, that's kind of what is labeled under the fixed method. There's not a lot of stuff that is labeled as fixed on our practice plans. It's like I said, it's usually just when something's getting introduced and it might only be, you know, it might only be labeled as fixed for maybe one practice, two at the most. Okay. Um, and, and then the second step to that is our, our guide uh, label. And the guide label basically is they've, it's gone through the fixed stage. So now we're at the point where the kids are comfortable with it and we want to allow for there to be mistakes. We want to allow for them to start learning on their own. Um, and so with the guide method is the rule of thumb that we use is that if a kid is, it, it makes two mistakes in a row, but then fixes the mistake the third time, it doesn't need to be addressed. But if the mistake happens, you know, three times in a row, then we can use the stoppage to try and, um, you know, fix that mistake. So it could be an individual, it could be a small group of kids, or it could be the whole group, um, for example. But whenever, whenever something's labeled as guide, if it's a 12-minute duration for that small-sided game, we're only allowed to do that three times. So me or one of the other coaches, they really have to pinpoint and pick something that they believe is, like, dire that we need to stop it from. And that goes to another point, but we usually use our gameplay principles for that. Um, so if it's something that's outside of the realm of what we're trying to focus on for that drill, we won't, you know, address it. So if we're doing a small sided game and the focus is trying to use the pick and roll and hitting the lift guy, because that's what we're struggling on. And someone doesn't box out. We're not stopping that small sided game because that kid didn't box out. Cause that doesn't go along with our point of emphasis. We're going to let that go. Mm-hmm. We'll fix that. We'll fix that in the small sided game on rebounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the third one is our follow portion. And, and this is like the really, for me and for us, it's the most important part. Um, so the follow portion is when those drills or small-sided games or live scrimmages get to the point where the players are comfortable. And now the entire duration of, a, of something that's labeled as follow is player run. So a lot of times what it will be is it might be a three-on-three or a four-on-four or a five-on-five game. And one kid on the practice plan is labeled as the captain. There's two teams, and that person is the only person who's allowed to play. They are the acting coach. So they're the only, I'm sorry, not play. They're the, they're the only person allowed to talk through the duration of that, um, you know, that drill or that small-sided game. It's usually a competition of something. Um, and what that does is obviously coaches are just we're we're watching we might be talking to ourselves while we're doing it um you know and just having conversation on what we're we're watching but then it also gives us an opportunity to put kids in different role-playing situations or working on stuff that might be their weaknesses so a lot of times i'm not going to put a kid who's very vocal all practice i'm not going to give them the role of being the vocal leader doing a following session because he already knows how to do that that kid might need to be able to work on his listening skills and being able to allow someone else to lead. And even if that person's wrong, not interjecting and just, you know, going along with that person. Um, and so we'll put a lot of times we'll put our non vocal kids in those situations and they're the ones who have to, you know, find their voice. And there's times where it's awkward because there's times where we'll put someone there and they'll huddle up and the kid maybe doesn't say anything. He's looking around 
and we just let it go. And the other kids are not allowed to step up and start talking. And eventually what we found is that they start to find their voice. Um, and it's usually not in that huddle. It's usually when the kid realizes that someone didn't do something that they were supposed to do and they say it like out loud in front of the whole group. And then, you know, it, it just takes one kid saying, oh, you're right, that's my bad. And then they find their confidence and they kind of step up in, in their leadership role there. Mm-hmm. How is that carried over into Friday night when the lights are on? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's great because, you know, that, that's the whole purpose that we, the whole reason we do that is because I only have five timeouts and I have half time to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be able to not just talk. Like I think a lot of coaches say, oh, huddle up on the free throw line. But then like you're not teaching them, like what are they talking about? Like it, that's great that they huddle up on the free throw line, but if they're all just looking at each other, it looks great from like where everyone else is sitting. But nothing's actually being accomplished in that situation. Yeah. Whereas for us, you know, if they're when, when they're huddled up on the free throw line, they should be talking time score, or they should be talking about the last play, whether it's a defensive rotation or um, whatever we're doing on offense. And because we work on it in practice, we don't get the situations where everyone stares blankly at each other and is waiting for someone to talk. And we also don't get the situations where all five people try to talk at once and nothing actually gets communicated. Yeah. Um, well, well I, think again, you, I think you, you – know, sorry, I'm Coach. Making it sound like, I'm oh. making it sound like we go into a game and we're, like, perfect at it. It's a very hard thing to teach, but eventually they start to get it and you start to see them getting it as the season goes on. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to – well, I meant to interrupt you there, but, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you hit on the key word, I think, which is communicate. And a lot of coaches will sit there, and I've said this, I don't know how many times on, on various podcasts here on this platform, we, we sit there and go, talk, talk, talk. No, no, communicate, communicate. Somebody's got to talk, but then the other players have to listen, and they have to absorb yep. whatever Jimmy or Susie or Mary or Tommy is saying. And by doing these type of exercises in practice, it puts kids in situations where they're forced to be the leader, but they're also forced to listen to other people and get the instructions, whether right, wrong, or otherwise, they now have to listen to somebody else instead of dominating the conversation or the the communicative part of it of giving the information out. Is that is that part of the purpose as well, Coach? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's that's really like the sole purpose behind it is, is just to try and eliminate the arguing um, because that I think we see that a lot too. Like one kid says this and the other kid argues back and it's like, you guys didn't even listen to what each other was saying. You were just worried about getting your point across. So it's getting them to understand that, um, you know, we need to be better communicators and part of communicating, you know, is the listening aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes, and this we're, we're all guilty of it, especially in the social media world. We listen to respond instead of listening to absorb. And, yep. you know, teenagers are just as guilty of it as, old people like me and you, you know, and yeah. we, we have to teach that skill to them. And this is a great, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated. I love this type of stuff. This is, this is really good. This is really good, Garrett. I like this. What else do you guys do that you feel like is unique to your practice planning? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the other thing that's probably pretty unique is like our practices are rarely more than a hundred minutes. I mean, we go 90 to a hundred and that's it. Um, and the reason we're able to do that is because we follow this kind of structure where talking time is limited. So we'll, I'll have a manager or I'll have an assistant coach kind of time 
stuff during practice. And if we have a 100-minute practice, there shouldn't be more than 10 minutes of talking throughout the entire thing. And if there is, then we I label that as a bad practice on our on our behalf as a staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so a lot, because a lot of the teaching and, and stuff like that, we're trying to put into the mistakes that are being made from the constraints that we're putting into our practice games and, and small sided actions and stuff like that. So it's, it's more of letting the game teach the kids and then we're there to stop and to, you know, kind of point them in the right direction or give them a question that's going to point them in the right direction so a lot of our stuff that we do is um, points-based learning. So we use, like, 100-point games that we play, um, and it's not your traditional, like, you score two points, you get two points, you hit a three, it's three. We'll play a game to 100 points, either full court or half court, and we have a sheet of things that, are, that go along with our gameplay principles where points are awarded. So a, a pass without a deflection is point. A reversal of the ball past the midline is five points. A post feed with a cut is ten points. Um, you know, a defensive rebound is if we're doing it on defense is five points. And so we'll play games based off of, of things like that. And then what we'll do is the shot that we get. If the shot goes in, you get your basic two points, your three points. But then the team who took the shot on offense, they have to come up in a huddle really quickly with a rating scale of the shot they got from one to five. Mm-hmm. So if you know if they get into a pick and roll action and they hit the lift guy and the lift guy takes a three, they might have earned eight points to get to that point. The three goes in. That's great. It's eleven points. Now was the three good? Like was it a contested three? Who was taking the three? Um, that sort of thing can be what they start to talk about, and then they rate it on a scale of one of one to five. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that's the point where we can, as coaches, if we're in the guide method, we can have a, a small discussion or a short discussion on it. So they might come out and say, "Oh, that's a five because he hit it in the kid's face," and we'll be like, "All right, but let's talk about like where we were right there and what we could have done." You know, was it really a five? Like, what is what makes a five? And then we kind of go from there and talk about it quickly. And then a lot of times they'll change it. Oh, you're right. Like that. Maybe that was a three. Maybe that was a four. Maybe that was a two. Um, and then what's nice about those games is they reflect right onto like Friday nights when we play. We'll talk about in the huddle instead of me trying to draw something up. I'll say, you know, I'll say, guys, we need a really, we need a high point possession, and they know that that means we want to get a valuable possession where we get a bunch of passes, reversals, using our set, our our um, our principles of play and get a good sh- a quality shot. And if we can get a 40-point possession out of a timeout, then you know we've done our job. If we get a 15-point possession, even if we score, it might not be what we are looking for. Mm-hmm. How long, because you, you know, this was your first year, and I'm sure it took some adjustment, for, some adjustment time for your players and for you as a first-time head coach to implement these concepts into your practice. When did you really feel like your players really took to this and it took off and you felt like you were, it was accomplishing what you wanted it to accomplish because it is a unique way of, or I don't want to say unique, but it is, it is non, you're, you're doing some things that are non-traditional for a lot of basketball coaches with these ideas, which I love all these ideas. This is, I'm cramping up writing all this down here, coach. Uh, so, but, but, you know, sometimes we, we come up with ideas, we do things in the off season, or we come in as a first time head coach and, 
and we're like, oh, this is going to work this. And then for whatever reason, whether it's the scoreboard or this or that, they're, they're not, it's, it's not moving along as maybe as, as quickly as what you wanted it to. So how long did it take for all of these unique concepts and, and maybe some non-traditional ways of looking at things? Uh, how long did that take to implement within your program where you felt like you were, your kids were really starting to get it, your coaching staff was starting to get it, and you were starting to, to see play out in front of your eyes what had been in between your ears for, for quite a while? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question and good point. And so the one thing I'll, I'll do to start answering that is say that I was lucky enough and I would give this piece of advice to any new coach or who's someone who's coaching in high school. I was lucky enough where when I was at Fairfield Prep and I was the associate head coach, I dem- not demanded because I don't want to say I had that much say, but <laughs> I really wanted to be the head JV coach. Um, and something that came along with that was – and this is my head coach and all the credit to him, he was able to give me my own practices. So I had three years of experience in running, in technically speaking, running my own programs and practices, and he let me do it in a way um, that was totally me. And so I was able to play around with some stuff and kind of came up with this method of plugging in things and taking things from what I've learned from other coaches. And then, you know, so that helped me just because I knew from a little bit of experience that I had that it worked. You, you got to work um, in the lab without a lot of pressure on you. Exactly. So yeah. I knew I was pretty, like I said, I, I was pretty confident in this, um, you know, being able to do this and, and, and it working. And I just needed to make sure that I, you know, just kind of stuck to my guns and, um, you know, let it play out. And I explained that to our coaching staff and I tried my best to explain to the kids. It's like, I know it's a little quirky. I know it's a little weird. You've probably never done this before. Um, but I, the one thing I will say is it's really, really fun. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's a fun way to practice. And so the kids bought into it quickly on the part of like doing it and understanding it and uh, going with it. The whole point of letting them, you know, or getting them to talk about the game and talk about the game through the scope of like the points and, and, and through our game, our principles of play. I would say that took, you know, a, a pretty long time, especially for some of our upperclassmen who had, you know, gone through way different practices before. Um, I actually think, in my opinion, our underclassmen got a grasp of it um, quicker than some of our older guys did, just because, you know, they were new to high school. Um, our sophomore class, our JV team was kind of new to the high school game, and they'd only played freshmen, so they kind of took to it a little bit easier than our, than our upperclassmen did. But I would say probably right around the midpoint of the season where, where we were two and eight and we were continuing to do these things is when we kind of saw it take off and, and kind of become more successful. A pen and a napkin university videos are just another way that a pen and a napkin can help you become a better coach. Our university video library is constantly expanding with topics ranging from interviewing for a job to full court defense to 25 universal truths about coaching. Our university videos will help you round out your skill set as a coach and help you hone your craft. Videos are $10 a piece with bundling options available. To order, you can DM me on Twitter, send me an email at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com or order from our website, a pen and a napkin.com. Be sure to check out the A Pen and a Napkin Video Library. Perfect, perfect. Um, let's talk about your your principles of play. 
uh, I, I saw this again on your on your Twitter account, and I'll let you plug your, your Twitter stuff at the end. Hold on to that, folks. Maybe sometimes at the end of the show, you're fast-forwarding through the credits or whatever it may be, but you're going to want to get Coach Hickey's uh, social media stuff because it's really, really good stuff. But I'm not going to tell you what that is right now because I'm going to make you listen to the whole thing here. So there's a teaser for you. But your, your, uh, your principles of play. And this is something that, that I did for my program. It took me a while to develop. Uh, I also like the way that you put yours together. And again, kind of laying out that curriculum for your program. Uh, what was the inspiration for that? How did you put it together? And, and maybe give us some, some details of that principles of play. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I got it from um, a Doug Lamov book, um, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. And so... Basically, all it, all it is is it, it breaks the game down into the four easy four aspects of what really happens in a basketball game. So you have your your offense, which is your half court offense. You have your transition offense, and then you have your defense, and you have your transition defense. And so we use those as our four kind of columns or pillars. And then what what I did was I, I just you know took the three levels of basketball that we have in our program, freshman JV varsity, and I came up with you know, two goals that we wanted our freshmen to be able to get to by the end of the year mm-hmm. in order for them to make our JV team. And mm-hmm. then same thing with JV. JV has three things for each of those four columns that they need to be able to do in order to be a successful varsity player. And then on the varsity level, it's three things for each of those columns in order for our varsity program to be successful and win games. Because at the end of the day, that's what the varsity program, you know, is about is, is becoming a successful team and having a good record and winning games. Yeah. Uh, how long did it take you to put that together? Uh, it was it was challenging. It, it, it's it was challenging, but fun because it makes you you know think about the game in those four aspects. It, it makes you think about what you really want to focus on um, throughout the year for the, the whole program and, and for each of those aspects. But when you're done with it, it's really awesome because you have something that not only us as a staff can look at for practice planning and for pro- like figuring out where we are progressing wise in, in the season. It's also a great thing. I didn't do it this year, but I'm going to do it next year uh, to use like during our parent meeting. Like mm-hmm. these are the things that we are trying to get your student athlete, you know, good at for it, wherever level they're at. And in order to, you know, make the team next year, this is what they need to at least show us, whether it's all of them or maybe it's, you know, 75% of them. But if you can't do, you know, the majority of these, your likelihood of being able to play, you know, in the next level up in our program is slim. Mm-hmm. Or if you are playing a lot and you can't do these things, then the scoreboard's probably not going to be very good for us as well. But here are right. here here are the things that we kind of feel like are really important for teams to be really successful with as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that, and I like laying that out. Has it helped as as you're now the CEO of your program? Does this also help your JV and your freshman coach know what you want to have done at their levels? Yeah, no, I mean that's that, that's really the the main purpose of it. You know, especially for me, it's very rare for me to get to a weekday freshman practice just because I you know I teach in a different building that I coach, so mm-hmm. it really helps my freshman coach in like practice planning. And then especially like following that the fixed guide follow method, you know, hey, you know, coach, this is what I want you to look at. These are the things that you should really stop play for and teach 
not like anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so that definitely helps, you know, for, for us, our JV coach is, is there, our JV varsity teams practice together because of gym time. So he pretty much follows like the varsity practice plan. Mm-hmm. But again, it, what's cool is there's technically two, it's the same plan, but there's two different practices going on because his focus is on, is on something that's completely different than what our focus is on. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. How about, uh, let's end on this, Garrett. Let's talk about your your concept of small-sided games. I know a lot of coaches talk about it. What are some of the small-sided games that you like to do? Why why are you a big fan of them? Uh, which ones do you do you emphasize the most if there's a concept or two within the small-sided games that you'd like to emphasize the most that you think are most important for the the development of your players and your team? Uh, what are they so forth and so on. Just kind of go through your philosophy of of small-sided games as much as you can there. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we, we, what I like to do is use small-sided games in two ways. So when we use it as, like, the teaching like, portion of it, we'll usually go, um, you know, odd numbers, so 4v3 if it's, you know, um, an offensive drill. And the reason we do that is when we use off numbers, so 3-on-2, 4-on-3, 5-on-4, there is going to be a correct decision that's supposed to be made. And so for film and practice that day, or we're using it as a, a, a teaching portion, you know, whether it's the guide method um, or whatever it might be, we can talk about the different reads that are going to come out of it because when there's one less defender, there is going to be a correct option um, that we should go to. So we'll use that as like the teaching aspect or the teaching portion. And then once we start to see understanding from the kids, we'll plug in that, you know, last defender so it's even numbers. And then we start to play our, you know, 100-point game or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the first way that we kind of use it. And then the second thing that we, the second way that we use it is I actually te- use the small side of games to teach, um, you know, our quick hitters or our set plays. So instead of walking through something five on O or five on five, what I'll do is I'll take the scoring action from whatever, from each, you know, for running five sets or whatever it might be, um, that year, I'll take the scoring action of each of the sets. I'll turn it into a small sided game. We'll start at three on two or four on three. That's the learning portion. Then we'll add that next defender. Then and we'll do a hundred point game. And then we'll add, you know, so it's five on five, and we'll get we'll put the false actions in before the actual scoring action. And what I found is that that is a really great way for the kids to learn it because they're learning to play backwards instead of learning it five on zero first. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So that's kind of the, that, that, that's those are like the two ways we use it. And obviously, you know, if you go odd number instead of playing a hundred point game, you can always put you know different constraints, whether it's offensive constraints or defensive constraints. It, you know, um, I know you talked a little bit earlier about rebounding. So like, we'll you know we don't do any rebounding drills at all. Like we just play three on three, four on four, and you it's scoring based off of, of rebounding, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the way that we, you know, that's our, I guess, quote unquote, rebounding drill. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. What are, what are your one, one, two, three big picture skills that you think small sided games help with the most? So I think the, the number one thing is, is decision making, um, you know, the ability to make the right decision the majority of times. And we do that through like making mistakes and learning through making mistakes. The second thing that uh, the small sided games really help us with is the communication part. Um, because we're not playing five on five, 
Um, a lot of times what we'll do is if it's four on three or four on four, or small sided game or three on three, we have the guys, you know, huddle up quick, um, talk about it. If it's a longer session day, a lot of times we'll, we'll actually do like a three on three or a four on four and then make the guys run to the whiteboard, draw up what just happened, uh, and then kind of talk the coaches through what they saw. So that's the communication slash like understanding the game part. And then the third thing, and I kind of keep going back to it. The third thing is it's just fun because we're playing, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, they're not standing around. They're not standing in a line. They're not listening to me or one of the other coaches talk. They're, they're playing the game and, and you know, they might get frustrated at, you know, a specific thing that we're doing, a constraint that we put in or whatever. But at the end of the day, they're checking the ball up and they're playing three on three, four on four or five on five. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Great way to end it, Coach. Other than this, I've got one more Connecticut trivia question for you. Oh, here we go. Are you ready? I am. Of course, Connecticut women's basketball, the legendary Gino Ariema, uh, has won, I think, 11 national championships. But he is not a native of Connecticut. He did not have any really connections to the University of Connecticut before he got there. Where was Gino Ariema an assistant at? before he came to the University of Connecticut? From what school did he leave? Okay, you went a different route. I thought you were going to ask me where he's originally from. Okay, there you go. Um, Okay, Gino, okay, hold on. Gino Oriana coached UConn, not North, no, because I'm getting Jim Calhoun mixed up with him now. Jim Calhoun Uh, was at Northeastern. Hold on. Let's see. He was at, no, that was, I have Northeastern in my head, but I know that he wasn't at Northeastern. I'll give you a hint. It's an ACC school. Oh, St. Joe's? St. Joseph's? ACC. Atlantic Coast Conference. Oh, Virginia. Oh, that's where we started. Virginia. Virginia was where we from, right? You win. Okay. You win. Roundabout win, but I'll take it. Yeah, we'll we'll call that a 50-50 split there. You 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 misheard me on that. So, Uh, (laughs) hey, (laughs) great stuff, Garrett. Great stuff. Uh, Your social media, great account. Coaches, I can't encourage you enough. Uh, to, to follow us. Tell us a little bit about your social media presence and and where folks can find your information. And it is it is a treasure trove of information. Uh, tell us about that, Garrett. Well, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, my, my Twitter handle is at Coach underscore Hickey, H-I-C-K-E-Y-5. Um, and, you know, I, I try my best to at least post one, you know, big piece, uh, big kind of nugget of information a day, whether it's a video uh, a PDF playbook, um, whatever it might be. Uh, try to do it once a day. Sometimes if I'm not as busy, it's, it's multiple things a day. Um, but it, it, there's a lot of some, some other things that are coming up from the woodwork that I'm hoping that are going to be pretty cool with some, some uh, super follows on Twitter and being able to give people a little bit more exclusive access to some of the other things that I'd like to share. So, yeah, they, it's at Coach underscore Hickey 5. Awesome. Coaches, get out there, follow this Twitter account. It's it's a really really good one, and uh, you know just a lot of different things on there. So so check it all out. Uh, Garrett Hickey, the head boys basketball coach at Norwalk High School in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, coach, uh, it's, it's been great. I'm glad we got this hooked up here over the last few days. We kind of had our ups and downs, and you were zigging and I was zagging. But I, I'm glad we finally got a a really terrific conversation. Uh, recorded here so folks can hear us talk hoops here. I, I really appreciate your time and, and everything that you're doing for the game. Well, th- thank you, and, and thank you for having me on. I, I really enjoyed it. Awesome, awesome. If you can hold the line here a second, got to wrap up a couple things here. Uh, again, Garrett Hickey, 
head boys basketball coach out in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, we want to thank him. We want to thank our founding sponsor, Cossack Chiropractic, for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at a pen and a napkin. Try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle. Download, rate, review this podcast. Let folks know about it, this uh, terrific conversation. Questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Go check out a pen and a napkin.com, newly redesigned website, hundreds of new pages. Like I said, I, I just downloaded about 80 random pages today on Coach Meyer and a bunch of his, his handouts and notes that I took off of Coach, Coach Meyer's uh, videos and things like that. So go check those out. It's two parts uh, there that I uh, scanned and put in the website today. And then, of course, if you would be so kind to visit the Patreon page, go to patreon.com backslash a pen and a napkin. Three different tiers that you can do uh, to sign up to help out a pen and a napkin. So uh, for for Garrett Hickey, uh, my name is Marty Plum. I hope you guys have enjoyed, guys and gals have enjoyed this podcast. Coaches, as always, let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time.